Hello. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the Bookbound podcast. My name is Georgie Codd. The conversation you're about to hear is one that I found so interesting, I immediately contacted friends and family and urged them to have a listen. I'm very glad you're here to join the experience too. It features David Lammy, a member of UK Parliament and author of the book Tribes, speaking with Maya Goodfellow, writer, academic and author of the book Hostile Environment. Their host is Malachi McIntosh of Wasafiri magazine. He's their publishing director and editor. And if you haven't heard of Wasafiri, I strongly recommend you take a look. They publish international contemporary writing four times a year. So if you're one of those people feeling constrained by the traditional British literary canon, that's English, white, male, heterosexual authors, then Wasafiri is a great place to start breaking out. This conversation was originally recorded in April 2020, which was a few weeks before the death of George Floyd and the protests that that sparked around the world. It felt like essential listening back then in April and feels even more relevant now in the wake of that, especially when it comes to the conversation here about race in the UK education system and how our shared history is covered. That's something that Maya Goodfellow actively campaigns to change. Enough from me, let's hand over to our three speakers. And we start by listening to David, who's been asked to summarize his book. Well, my book is a part memoir, um, part um, sort of social political theory book. Um, I say part memoir because I think it's really hard as a politician, in my view, to write without giving something of yourself in the writing. And so in examining tribes, and really that means the new tribalism that we're experiencing in our own country, but it's happening in much of the world. Um, This is where people are kind of coming together in groups really based around feeling emotion um, that can be hate groups, can be sectarian, um, can be quite mean and quite nasty, but often quite identity-based. In that that age, uh, I wanted to explore the tribes that made me up. And so I write about growing up in Tottenham and the Caribbean community into which I grew up. I go to Guyana, where my parents were from. I go to Niger um, in Africa, where my DNA, a DNA test demonstrated I've got ancestors. Um, and I go back to Peterborough, which is a city that I spent seven years in. But then I move from there really to explore modern Britain and some of the challenges that I that I see, and that centers around loneliness, a lack of belonging, why people are seduced by some of this hateful rhetoric, why we've got to this place where identity um, and the politics of identity feels to be everything. And ultimately, the end of the book is an exploration of how I think government can at least begin to think harder about the need to belong that's innate in human nature and how we build a united culture. And that means for me, a civic nationalism, 
um, not an ethnic nationalism of the kind that we're hearing um, in this country from people like Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg, in America from people like Donald Trump, um, and, and how we can, and how we have to recognize that some of our huge challenges, and of course, coronavirus demonstrates this, we can only deal with these things globally. Uh, and, and climate change, refugee crisis, these require global solutions. And why this retreat that we're seeing into ever decreasing smaller tribes is deeply problematic. But unless you deal with the individual sense of belonging, unless you can create a common culture and an encounter culture in which we all have place, it's incredibly hard to make the case for a kind of globalized world in which we act together, which is why I think we're seeing some of the real challenges that coronavirus is presenting because the world is not acting globally. Yes, great, thank you very much. And then Maya and hostile environment, how would you summarize it? Yeah, I mean, I guess everyone will be familiar with the term hostile environment, which really is, I mean, broadly is the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Act. But the title actually is intended to speak to what I see as a much longer term issue within the UK, thinking about how the UK has been a hostile environment for people who've been called migrants and particularly people of colour for decades. And so I guess one of the um, one of the things the book is trying to do is it's really trying to unearth the UK's history of immigration, but also the UK's history of immigration legislation and make sense of that history. And um, in a way, I was writing the book before, I was writing the book during the, the so-called Windrush scandal, but actually the mo more recent Wendy Williams review, the Lessons Learned reviews into the Windrush scandal, kind of um, speaks to why I wrote the book. And one of the things that she says in that is that the, it's the UK's history of immigration legislation that led to this scandal. And it's a history that isn't well enough known in politics. It's not well enough known within the Home Office, but it's also not well enough known, I would argue, within the UK as a whole. And you know, I went through the whole of the British state education system and didn't learn about empire until I chose myself to learn it as an individual study project. And that meant I didn't learn about my own family's history. So my mum migrated to the UK from India not as a migrant, actually, as a citizen of this country. And that is not something that was reflected in my own education. It's not something that's widely known. And for me, um, I suppose writing the book was to unearth that history and to try to do that in a, in a way that's accessible, um, in a way that is hopefully readable. It's not for me to judge that, but that was the aim of when I was writing. Um, but also to actually challenge a lot of the conventional arguments that are made around immigration. What I found time and again prior to my PhD, I worked um, for a website called Labour List that covers news and, um, and um, comment from across the labour movement. And I was there during the 2015 election when there were the controls and immigration mugs that came out of the Labour Party. And when I was there doing that reporting and doing some of that comment writing, I was really thinking about how is it that we're here? How is it that, that some, of our, some of the people in our public life don't feel able to or are fine with reproducing some of these anti-immigration arguments. And so I suppose for me, it was really looking at that debate and realizing that some of the people who are arguing against immigration, I'm not gonna name them, but you know, they're quite well known. Um, they're very good at getting into spaces and making these arguments in an accessible way that makes it seem common sense that seemed to be lacking in a lot of ways from the, from the other side. Um, and so what I really wanted to do was actually challenge some of these fundamental, the fundamentals of those arguments. 
And part of this is, as well as looking at the history, I guess it's partly a conversation with the left as well, looking at where there has been gains, where there has been strong resistance to some of this, but also when there's been complicity. And looking at that history allows us to see that, but also looking at the more recent arguments around immigration allows us to see how I think at times the left, and I know this is a very frustrating term to use because the left is made up of lots of different people doing a lot of different things, but I guess there is a there is a, at moments a real complicity and a real acceptance of some of these arguments. And so I, I suppose for me, I guess I'll end by saying that um, thinking about the book, one of the core things for me to think about, and I came across doing the research for this, was that it's really taken as read that anti-immigration sentiment is inevitable, that it is an inevitable product of too much immigration of a certain kind. You really find that argument made a lot, it's really accepted. And for me, that is the wrong starting point because I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's constructed. I think it's been produced over decades. I think it is produced by politics, by media, by all these histories, these wrong histories that we tell ourselves about what the UK is and what it always has been and so for me it's about challenging that inevitability it's not inevitable that people are going to be anti-immigration anti-immigration because there's too many immigrants that is a misreading of the situation that misunderstands where anti-immigration sentiment comes from and how it is constructed okay, thank you thank you both for those really sort of comprehensive summaries um, I think even in just sketching out the broader arguments of the book the points of conjunction and potential disjunction I think made themselves apparent but I think just thinking about where the two works sort of overlap I suppose again you you both have compatible starting points and I was was interested while reading the books um, in the way that the almost mile markers in both are very similar both of you talk about the Windrush scandal of course both of you are very active sort of denouncing it David in the House of Parliament Maya in your in your sort of journalistic writing both of you talk about the Grenfell State scandal both of you refer to the Corbyn moment and sort of what that meant or, or didn't mean. Um, both of you talk about the amnesia of the school curriculum. I saw David nodding your head quite a lot when Maya said that she wasn't taught the history of empire. Both of you also talk connected to that about myths of Britain's valiant role in abolition and so forth and sort of, you know, the idolatry of, of William Wilberforce, which forms such a core part of how we understand slavery through schools. But however, despite the similar mile markers, the way you go into these questions of, I mean, broadly how Britain understands itself today, I mean, that really is what both books seem to be about. The way you go about it and, and exploring those questions are very different. The David, you talked about your personal approach um, and a person was very, um, I didn't expect your book to be so grounded in your own experience. So it begins um, with this DNA test that you received which linked you to the Tuareg tribe in Africa and how that made you think about your identity. Um, there's some quite moving passages you say about going back to, to, to your roots. Um, Caribbean theorists always talk about talking about your roots, R-O-O-T-S, and your roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, um, which this book very much is. Quite moving story of your, your mother and how she sort of helped to establish your family in the UK. Whereas Maya, your approach to this is very different. I think with the exception of one anecdote, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you talk about how in school, um, one of your classmates sort of uh, said to you that you're not from here. And that was a moment where your sort of identity was destabilized in a way that had a lasting impact. You've gone for a more of a journalistic approach, um, really a, an archival approach as well, going back into these, you know, uh, these decades, if not centuries of immigration policy. Um, and since I started with you last, David, I just wanted to say, my what, what led you to that approach? And um, why sort of remove yourself so much? Um, 
I mean, not saying it's a bad or a good thing, but I'm just curious, you know, when you're writing the book, what led to this, this, this mode of composition? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, and like forcing yourself to really reflect on why you've made the decisions you have. It almost feels like a PhD uh, Bible. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, my background as an academic is revealing itself. So. <laughs> These are good questions to ask, and I think they're good things to reflect on. And I, I guess, I guess for me, I'm not against um, drawing on the personal. I think it's actually really important and really powerful. I think it's a really brave thing to do as well. And maybe that's partly why I, I, I didn't do that in a lot of ways because it feels so. It, it is a really personal subject to me in a lot of ways, as I imagine it is for a lot of people in the UK thinking about, um, particularly anti-immigration politics and how that makes you feel when you are kind of marked out as is not belonging. But for me, I suppose my starting point was actually, as well as my starting point, I mean, if you read my acknowledgements, you'll see that my starting point really is actually my mum's experiences and actually what it was for my mum to move to this country and be treated in the ways that she was and still is in a lot of ways. Um, that has shaped my understanding of this in a big way. But having said that, um, I was really, because I'd worked in the media and because I'd, I'd part of my PhD was also looking at media coverage of um, a number of different issues. I'm really concerned with actually how people's voices are erased in this. And so my, my starting point was really interviewing people, speaking to people who have moved through the system about those experiences and in a way that isn't only casting them as victims of the system. Actually, everyone I spoke to, I, you know, I went around the country, different parts of the country and spoke to people about their experiences of moving through the immigration system, of resisting some of the policy. And it was really clear to me and it actually came out in a lot of the interviews where people were saying, I'm not here just to tell you this because I'm sitting around feeling like a victim. I'm here telling you this because I'm advocating for change. I've experienced this system in these, all these different ways. And these are the things that I want to see change in it. And so for me, that was a really important starting point of kind of of humanizing the debate and making it clear that people have agency but it's limited within a system that tries to strip them of that humanity and of that agency and so that for me was really the important starting point of where who needs to be heard who isn't heard in that debate and how can that be done in is is um, an empathetic way as possible and i think the other thing was that i really wanted to part of because I, I speak to people who move through the immigration system but i also speak to people as well as immigration lawyers, I speak to some of the politicians who, and some of the thinkers who um, maybe defend some of these pieces of legislation I'm really critical of. And so one of the things that I tried to do, um, and not everyone would talk to me, I mean, not everyone has the time, but not everyone would agree to, to speak to me about this, and maybe because they Googled me and then saw what my approach was. Um, but I did speak to some people who still have the, a, like, a, a view that I wouldn't agree with and a view that is different from my own. And I really wanted to kind of understand where it was they were coming from and their justifications for some of that beyond what you read in the newspapers and what you see in um, like TV documentaries. I wanted to talk to them about that and kind of put that under a bit of the spotlight. For me, that was quite an important approach to take as well as weaving in a lot of the academic work that... Um, is really rich in this area. There is so much work on this. There's so much really uh, important work that doesn't always translate into the mainstream narrative. And so that was also part of my drive was to use the really huge amounts of literature that already exist and the arguments that are already there and bringing them into hopefully what is an accessible format. So at some level sort of, uh, it sounds like the argument is in the media, we only get a small slice of this conversation. And in the book, you wanted to add all the voices involved into the conversation. So yeah, I wanted to try to do that because it feels like the debate is 
either it is certain academics who are able to get into those spaces and make these what seemingly common sense arguments in ways that seem quite impenetrable because they're using facts and figures and those are things you can't dispute and that isn't done always from all different sides of this debate um but yes also thinking about the people who are experiencing the system and i think um when i was writing it, it was when amelia gentleman was doing that work for the windrush scandal which i think is a very good example of that of allowing people of giving a different view of this and so that was happening at the same time as i was doing this research and so i thought it was quite a good example of how that can be done very well in the media but isn't always great um just sticking with structure and form for a minute before digging into some of the the points that you've made um especially around things like civic nationalism, and um, especially about sort of silencing and humanizing the debate. But before that, David, um, Jerusalem, Babylon, out of Africa, how did that come to be? So these, for people who don't know, that, those are sort of the major um, structural units of the book. I'm just curious how that conceptual frame emerged. Well, I mean, the first thing I think about my writing is that I'm really conscious when I'm writing that I want my book to be read by aunts, uncles, cousins, members of my family, not all of whom went to university, sort of everyday people, and the book is accessible. So a bit like Maya, there's definitely an element in which, of course, I'm doing lots of reading and research by academics, and I'm bringing that into a, a mainstream accessible conversation and even the the term and the idea of new tribalism uh, was started by um, um, uh, in 1988 by a, a, a thinker called Mafasoli uh, writing in, in um, uh, French and Italian uh, and talking about this new phenomenon of what he saw which is this sort of communities of feeling. And it, you know, it's my job to bring that into the mainstream. Uh, but I guess the truth is that, you know, we're living in a world where I've come to realize a lot of people see me, David Lammy, through the lens of the new media and particularly through Twitter. Now, Twitter is important to me because it's an important way to on the day-to-day -day events in Britain to demonstrate where I stand in the ground and what my views are. And they tend to be views on issues of race, identity, immigration, um, home affairs, education. Those are the issues I'm associated with justice. And, um, but those views can be in this medium, very binary. Um, they're in 140 characters. They are reactive to the day's events. Um, uh, and so one is aware that they, that brings with it real limitations, never mind the trolling, the, the, um, the kind of animosity that, that these mediums drive. And I talk about that a lot in my, in my book. Um, so what a book does is it allows you to explore through pages and pages and pages so i suppose i'm saying that for me the writing and this is my second book is therapy and and the writing is a was a response to people questioning my right to be english my right to be british 
my right to have a platform that is the House of Commons, my right to speak on behalf of people affected by Windrush, my right to speak emotively on behalf of those who died in Grenfell Tower. And they were really challenging and questioning my own identity. And the truth is, in order to kind of combat and deal with that, I haven't got a shrink. I don't think I can afford one. <laughs> so writing is a form of therapy. And, and, it's, it, and I'm aware that I'm using, it, it's, an, it, you know, it's another way in which politicians can communicate. And I guess when I'm thinking of a chapter called Babylon, you know, that's steeped um, in, in a, in a you know, Pan-African understanding, um, in a, in a, I suppose, a nod to Rastafarianism and, you know, concepts that speak to the Caribbean tradition from which I'm from uh, and a new world, which is very much what Windrush and coming to the motherland demonstrated. When I uh, talk about out of Africa and start the book, it's because we're all out of Africa, but I am most definitely <laughs> out of Africa. Um, and Jerusalem is because I am at, was attempting in that, that paragraph that's really about Peterborough, Middle England, and where we find ourselves in modern Britain, to really nod to an important part of my identity, not to deny it, to brush it away, to pretend it's not there. I've said before, I don't think I would be the member of, I would be a member of parliament were it not for my experience of spending seven years in that city. So I tried to write that, I think, important chapter in my book, not from a sort of sneering, liberal, looking down on folk way. I wrote it from a experience of being part of community well that's what i try to do i mean others will have their view about whether i pull that off or not yeah and that's a really interesting part of the book actually and a moment really where you shift into reportage um and it's where sort of david it, it explains his experience of going to boarding school in peterborough um the sort of the, the solidarity of the marginalized that seemed to have emerged in that context. So your close friend was someone who had a stutter and he was sort of an outsider. You're an outsider because you're a black, you know, this, this is the kind of communal group that began to form. And then you return and talk to his family from Coret um, about the situation in Peterborough, about the worries about Eastern uh, European migration. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of play of relations between class and location and expectations and migration how in that moment you are an insider, although from a migrant background to them, whereas you know, the more recent arrivals from Europe may be seen as, as kind of, of outsiders. I want to, it's a really good transition point actually, to come back around to something. I didn't think I wanted to talk about that. I think I do now uh, in part, Maya, because you mentioned your um, acknowledgements in the back of your book, where you say the book was inspired by your mother's experience. David, again, in your book, you know, your mother's experience seems really almost to form the core of our understanding of, of your identity and the politics that you've adopted. Um, I think in, in interesting ways, I suppose you both would be called, quote unquote, first generation migrants, even though many of us don't like that term. Um, uh, in interesting ways, too, it seems that, you know, your, your later activism and understanding of, your, of Britain as a whole and your role within Britain and what needs to be done to it seem to emerge out of this family experience. I just wonder if, if the two of you could talk just briefly about how that sort of family, that close formation sort of influenced your, your thinking about these issues and how that formation perhaps gave you a slightly different perspective 
aren't questions around belonging and Britishness and, and you know, um, civic identity, perhaps from, from the norm that we see in, in, in public life. Mara, you go first. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think that you don't really realize, to an extent, you don't really realize the effect that it's having on you until you kind of compare your experiences to other people's. And I'm kind of interested by something for what David is speaking about in terms of um, this relationship with Peterborough. You know, I grew up in Newcastle. And so my, identi my identity is like kind of, it's all over the place. At one point, you know, I'm a Geordie and another point I'm not. And it, it, it's a very difficult thing to navigate. And you don't really realize, I think, some of those differences until you, like until really I moved to London and started to compare my experiences, even to some of my friends who'd grown up in London. It's such a different experience from growing up in somewhere like Newcastle for all kinds of different reasons. And it really wasn't until I came to London that I actually reflected on this thing that I mentioned before about not learning about this family history. I didn't really reflect on that until I was in a city like London and realizing actually what it could look like to be living somewhere like this um, and what it could feel like and that sense of belonging. And that's really when I started to think about this family connection and thinking about my mom's own experiences. When she moved to the UK, she, grew, she lived in London. She grew up and well, spent a lot of her childhood um, or her teenage years in Peckham and then moved to Newcastle. And so for me that as well, knowing that history and knowing what it was for her to move from somewhere like London to somewhere like Newcastle, also kind of filtered into how I was understanding these ideas of belonging. And she talked a lot growing up about these experiences and about what it was. She, when she left university, she then went and taught in a secondary school in a very, very, I mean, Newcastle itself, is, it, particularly at that time was very white, but even when she was teaching, it was very white and she would talk about the fact that all the children that she would teach would te be teaching would say things like you're all right miss it's all the others that are the problem and having these kinds of experiences knowing this like as being part of your um growing up and hearing these stories was really really important to how I kind of understood the country and my kind of place in it I suppose and questioning that questioning your whether you can belong and that sense of belonging and constantly being questioned about where it is that you're from. Like, I know this is now something that's said a lot, but it is this thing that follows you around is people wanting to place you and wanting to know where that history is. It's something you still get now, even with this kind of, it now has become this kind of joke that you see circulating on things like social media. You still get these questions. And I guess in a lot of ways, I've kind of rejected that. I've rejected the having to place myself and having to even claim a national identity. I understand why some people want to do that, but it's something that I find quite difficult because particularly being mixed race, from the Indian side, you get told you're not Indian. And from the British side, you get told you're not British. And it can be a very, it can be a very difficult thing to navigate that that national identity then becomes something that's very, very tough to grapple with um, in a lot of different ways. So I'm not sure that's exactly the answering the question that you asked, but thinking about those family experiences, that's kind of where it takes me is it's, it's quite a confusing, it's quite a confusing thing personally for me to navigate. and doing some of the research for this book, I kind of understood why that was, because it's very hard to locate yourself in the nation. But even now thinking about contemporary India, it's not like I can locate myself there either. And so it is, it is a very, um, it's hard when these two different sides of you at once want to claim you, but also want to reject you. It's a very, it's a very difficult thing to navigate, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose necessarily triggers a a unique way of seeing that identity that's distinct from both, I guess, identities which are not quite claiming you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's kind of why you do find these um, drawing solidarities across different, like across these different identities and kind of rejecting, you know, putting yourself in a box. And that's why I think finding um, those solidarities across people who migrated here at different stages in their life, or maybe are what you might call second or third generation. Yes, these are problematic terms. Building those solidarities is actually where I find a lot of the inspiration, a lot of the hope. And one of the things that came out of doing the research for the book, which is like somewhat known as finding some of these points of solidarity between people along different racial lines and or different religious lines. And like looking back at the histories and finding those, those um, people who were working in the mills in Lancashire refusing to pick um, the to, refusing to handle the cotton that was picked by slaves in America. Like these are the solidarities that I find really, really inspiring and give me hope that actually these boxes, although they may be useful in some ways and important in some ways for some people, they're also not the only things that confine you and, and uh, like allow you to identify yourself. Look, I think that, and I just bouncing off what Maya said because I relate to it, is this business of being, where do I fit? Um, you know, where do I belong? Um, and struggling with those questions. And certainly I struggled with those questions for, you know, at least two or three decades. And, and I write in the book about a moment where I'm, I sort of fall into depression, really. On paper, I'm doing really, really well. I'm a young lawyer. I've been to Harvard. I've done well. I'm in a law firm. I'm in California. How, how much better can it get? But, but the truth is, I'd spent my life being the first black chorister, the first black uh, in my family to go to university, the first black Brit at Harvard, the first. And then you sort of you, you look up all of a sudden and, oh, my God, I'm really lonely. <laughs> where, you know, where are my people? Where do I belong, right? And, and I end up quite far away from home and quite depressed. And I came back home because that's what I needed to do. But I guess the thing I would say is this is about the business of being an ethnic minority. We use the phrase a lot. And I think that we think a lot, you would expect us to, about the ethnic of that phrase. But this is also thinking about what it genuinely means to be a minority. And what it means to be a minority is sometimes the majority doesn't see, doesn't care, doesn't know. And um, I'm writing uh, now, today, uh, sort of in my late 40s, with a sort of security and a solidity about who I am, my place in the world. And so the, the book draws, of course, on my mother's experience and the home in which I grew up and what it meant to be. I mean, I grew up, we were terribly small. I mean, Tottenham was a small environment. It, this was still the age of Alf Garnet and, and the National Front and real prejudice. Um, I then journeyed, as it were, to Peterborough and beyond that. But, you know, there are challenges that come from, 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 from within that. And I guess I wasn't afraid in the book to write about subjects that you very hardly get discussed in Britain because, because in a sense, confronting um, British history, um, you know, Britain tends to want to talk about winning the Second World War, we stood alone, we beat Hitler or Henry VIII and his wives, uh, we, you know, we, we defied Rome. But there's a hell of a lot in between, right? And, you, and, and that's not really taught in schools even today. 
So there's something about confronting your modern history. And that modern history isn't the sort of veneer, you know, colorblind, race doesn't matter, racism is just about being mean to someone who's a bit different to you. The truth, I think we know today, is about structure and power and about why these things exist, why we have a hostile environment, why we've had these various immigration acts in the way that we have. Um, and in my book, I wrote about white fragility, uh, about when I raised important issues, I think, around the way that organizations like Comic Relief fundraise, uh, issue, actually issues that are a rich discussion if you're in international development or if you're in universities, you know, they've been talking about these things for years. These aren't new discussions. Why there's such a reaction? Because how can you challenge Stacey Dooley? How can you challenge comic relief? And, and, and almost an ambivalence and an uncaring because both you both will know that many minority families switch off comic relief because they don't want their children to see those images and to be sensitized to those images and to believe that that is Africa. Because in this country, the vast majority of Brits still believe that most of the countries in Africa are in famine. And they don't realize that in Lagos or Cape Town or, um, you know, Arusha, there are, um, you know, huge skyscrapers and there's a booming middle class community. And in a sense, that's, that's part of the condition of being a minority. The pivot to talking about whiteness, David, um, is appreciated because I think it's a way into thinking about um, potential points of conflict, actually, in the two arguments that you lay out. So there's lots of things that are in agreement between the two works. Um, of course, you, you take very different tacks, which I think we've laid out now. So, you know, my more historically engaged. David, I think your argument is, refers back to history, but is really, really grounded in the present. Um, however, in that grounding in the present, uh, the idea of the new tribalism. I, I, I wondered about when I read the book. Um, if we flip over to Hostile Environment, your book, Maya, you're trying to unearth, as you said um, earlier, this long history uh, in Britain of, um, you know, racist sentiment effectively in policy. Um, and, you know, you, you flip back as far as uh, Germanophobia around the turn of the century, um, you touch a little bit on anti-Semitism, which you know the history of anti-Semitism in Britain goes all the way back to the 13th century, and um, when there were you know arguments about usury, etc., which gave Jews a unique status, which was unchallenged. You talk about anti-Roma sentiment, which goes back to I believe the 16th or 17th century or so. So this long history of legislation of discourse around the other, um, and of course then going into empire, and it's the way that it's hinged on whiteness. Whereas David, I think in your introduction, although maybe less so as the book progresses. You present this sense of tribalism, um, the, the kind of, you know, uh, us first and not them uh, ideas that we see a lot in the media. as something that's relatively new and something that seems to have, you know, uh, almost be attributed to social media echo chambers and things like that. And I was curious if that actually is a division. So, David, do you really think that tribalism is something that, that is, is new? And, and, and similarly, Maya, is it, do you have a sense that things have recently accelerated or changed in some way? Or is it just a single narrative that's carried us through and who we define as the other has just shifted from age to age? Look, I would say that my starting point is to say that the kinds of conversations that I'm having today and I've been having for the last five years in Britain 
around a populist, nationalist, supremacist, um, the sorts of death threats I receive and the things that are said is hugely amplified, deadly, deadly serious, have taken the life of, an, of, a, of a young, wonderful female MP and are very, very real. And it is not to say that those things were not present in the 1970s when I was growing up, but it, I think it is to say that in the first 10 years of my, my period as a member of parliament in the, in the 2000s under Tony Blair, I just think we would not have almost been able to predict that this would be where we are. It's not to say that the underbellies were not there, but I, I, it's to say that I, I just don't think that that's how we thought things would go. Uh, so progress is not linear. It is up and down. And so I'm very conscious that I'm writing in a moment. Uh, but I am not writing my book solely to be picked up, you'll forgive me, by Guardianistas in London. Um, I am writing my book, and I'm not writing my book either as a journalist. Um, so I, I'm very acutely aware if you're a politician writing, you can, unless it's entirely a memoir, then you really have got to be writing also with a policy platform for what you would say you want to change. You cannot just describe the problem. You're not going to get away with that. The critics are not going to get, let you get away with that. So um, I want my book to be accessible. I want my book to be read by Times readers as well as Guardian readers, um, if you like. And, and I'm interested in the bridge building that's required. I, so I want to be persuasive in my writing. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that happens, I don't know if Maya sort of recognizes this, but if this sort of minority position, or I see it sometimes in my own mixed heritage children, you can kind of occupy different boxes at the same time. And these identities are coming together. And I suppose, so I, I mean, there's a slightly different book I could have written if I was very much writing for a particular audience of friends um, who have a particular worldview. But I was, I was trying to be as inclusive as I could be in that moment. And that's part of, that's a, honestly, that's part of my own therapy um, to not find myself solely in the echo chamber. And it's because I, in the end, this is where I live, this country. Um, as much as I find faults in it, and I do, uh, I still have huge respect and love for it. It's my home. It's where my children are raised. And I'm writing in a spirit of how can we all get along in this island? Um, uh, and, and so that's, that, that sort of signifies uh, my concern about this new tribalism that we're experiencing, but how I think we can bridge that. And I recognize we can't just bridge it because the Labour Party wants to bridge it. And actually, we have also got to recognise the demons that exist in my own party and the problems and the tribalism that can exist in my own party. We have also, you can bridge to a place, a place that meant that David Cameron a few years ago asked me to lead a review on disproportionality in the criminal justice system. So you can be bipartisan as you move forward. That's mine. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I really agree about the comic relief, just before I get on to thinking. <laughs> the comic relief, it's something that um, 
Honestly, growing up, it was the thing. It's, so my PhD actually was in looking at race and racism in international development discourse. And the reason I did that PhD, I mean, my mum is owed so much of my, I owe so much of everything I think to her, um, is because whenever Comic Relief would come on the TV, she would give a speech <laughs> about <laughs> all the problems. I mean, a, a correct speech now, I know that I'm older, but about all the problems with, with, with this very... Um, like year, every two years is it event and so they really laid the groundwork for thinking about some of the problems about how we understand Britain and the rest of the world um, and so I, I think it's really interesting what, what David has talked about in terms of the specificity of this moment and I think actually there's a risk sometimes with my own work and with work that wants to draw the continuities that we don't recognize what has shifted and changed. And that matters not only to understand the distinct forms of racism that operate in the UK, um, the forms of resistance that have been successful and the gains that have been made. We don't want to erase that. But I think there's a risk as well sometimes with suggesting that nothing has changed. It almost lays down the ground to thinking that nothing ever can. And so if we, if we say that it's always been this way, the response is kind of, well, well, it always will be. And so what's the point? But I suppose for me, um, drawing actually the um, drawing on these uh, on these histories, the reason for doing that was to actually to try to make sense of how the, these things have been constructed. So I haven't just tried to present it as oh there was anti-Semitism that produced the 1905 Aliens Act. Actually, that anti-Semitism was created. It was created through political rhetoric, through media reporting. It wasn't grounded in reality in terms of the things that were being said about Jewish people at the time. And I think we can track the way that shifted and changed, the way some of that has remained the same if we look at contemporary forms of anti-Semitism. Um, but for me, it's about tracking, trying to track the changes. I think that's a really difficult thing to do. And actually, I'm in a, I'm in a, um, a reading group where we were discussing these exact issues. So some of the things I'm saying are not just attributable to me. They, they have, I've taken from these really fruitful conversations. We're currently rereading re um, Paul Gilroy's Ain't No Black and the Union Jack. And he does this masterfully tracks the changing forms of racism in the debate and I suppose part of what I was trying to do obviously I'm not in any way claiming to to be in any way in the league of Paul Gilroy <laughs> part of what I'm trying to do is is thinking about these changing these changing forms of racism and anti-immigration sentiment and for me actually understanding that history is really key to understanding what has shifted and what has stayed the same and so there are some of these tropes that do just remain in the debate it's, it is not uh, um in many ways it, whilst it is incredibly depressing and dispiriting it's not a surprise that the hate rise in hate crimes right after the eu referendum was not only directed to people who are marked out as from eastern europe but also from visible minorities within the UK, Islamophobia went up, and that is also itself, while it has a long history, is distinct in the sense of it being bound up with 9-11 and that all the war on terror rhetoric that came afterwards. And so I think actually looking back at those histories is really, really essential for me to understand how these things are constructed. And I suppose kind of looping back to something I said, said right at the start, is for me, it's also about understanding how race has been constructed, how it was constructed in particular and popularized during, popularized during empire and how that those structures, while they have changed, that hierarchy of race still exists. It may present itself in different ways, race is articulated in different ways, but that is for me still a central part of the immigration debate. And a big impetus for me for writing the book was actually a response to some of those people who say, you know, it's not racist to be concerned about immigration because with that phrase, 
what you're doing is you are totally denying any debate or understanding about how race is functioning in the debate, which is crucial for me, how it's functioning in legislation. And so the book really is maybe differently than from, from David is, is, is it's really a conversation with the left, but also a conversation with liberals and how you can challenge some of the arguments around immigration even more than some people are doing. And even some of the problems with some of those challenges that exist around how we frame e immigration only ever as an economic benefit, turning people into kind of commodities and not really re recognizing their humanity. And that is, uh, that's, part of what I was trying to do is to kind of broaden up that, broaden out that debate and look at the history in order to inform how we understand contemporary forms of racism and anti-immigration sentiment. Can I just say, um, I, I do want to say that, that mirrors that point, that my book is a challenge to the left to not just think that having an economic account of how the world should be is sufficient. I think that the, that the left hasn't got a sufficient cultural account. And therefore, in my writing, I wanted to draw on anthropology, sociology, um, neuroscience to talk about belonging as innate. And therefore, um, whilst the left can have a strong internationalist account, going back to basic basics, and I'm thinking of the sort of Methodist Christians that founded the Labour Party, if you, ain't, if you haven't got an account of family life, if you haven't got an account of neighborhood, you can forget it. And, and basically Britain, uh, England is crying out for an account that's local. And, that, that, and, and if you're not in that space, then expect, expect Nigel Farage and others to occupy the territory. I suppose that's what I was also writing, writing about. As, a, as an outsider to these um, political discussions uh, or adjacent to them very much so it is always interesting to me the, ex the fact that the mainstream political parties in Britain certainly within the last five years ten years perhaps slightly longer are less and less seeming to craft some idea of what the ideal Britain would be you know, it seems right. very policy focused very economically focused but there's no vision no unifying vision of you know with the people who are in this country now what is, uh, you know, uh, the ideal version of this country? It, it seems to sort of fall out of view. Now that's a very good point. And in that sense, uh, in a sort of, uh, this is very African-American, but it's also Caribbean, that it's a, it's a Christian thing, that idea of the promised land, that vision to where Martin Luther King wants you to get to, um, um, is something that I'm attracted to and we need more of in our politics. Where do we want to be at the end of this story? Uh, particularly if your view is that we're incredibly divided at the moment because actually the forces that seem to be winning the debate can only be leading us to a certain conclusion and it's a pretty horrific one, really. And that's why those of us who are progressive have got to get our act together. We really have got to get our act together. Thank you. So time is running away from us in, in ways that were slightly unexpected. There are various different things that I wanted to touch on, including the idea of civic nationalism and solidarity that we probably won't have time to touch on because we have a question which has come in. I would very much like the person who sent a question uh, to have that question aired. Um, before moving to it, the conversation on the Bookbound website is framed as um, migration in the time of the pandemic. Um, we probably won't have time to go into that in, in, in detail, but I think certain things we perhaps can take for granted, if I can invoke my privilege as, as chair, that rhetoric about this uh, disease being the great leveler does not seem so far to match up to what's taking place. 
um, ideas about migration and, and who belongs and who deserves treatment are very much in a period of flux, it seems, around uh, the response to the NHS. Um, there was the You Clap For Me Now video campaign, which was actively trying to assert that, you know, people of migrant backgrounds have value within Britain. And I guess there's questions around how that value is being framed. Um, but it certainly seems like the sorts of issues both of you are engaging with in your books are not going anywhere um, uh, as far as COVID-19 is concerned. It won't be that lockdown ends, a vaccine is found, and suddenly there's a, there's a, a sort of unifying uh, British identity or international identity. It seems very much that that's something that will need to be fought for. Um, I just want to ask this question um, very quickly. So the curriculum has come up in this conversation, has come up in both of your books, and someone has written in asking what can be done to teach these silence histories about empire and colonialism in schools. It seems to be almost a, a key pillar of any new way of understanding. You know, you invoked Paul Gilroy, um, Maya, and he's always talking about post-colonial melancholia, the fact that Britain has not come to terms with the loss of its empire, and that's the cause of its problems. It's in this sort of endless recycling process that's not fully mourning and moving on. Um, so the question was, what should be done or can be done in schools to bring these histories more to the fore? And speaking, I think, to David, a point you made a, a little while ago, how do these histories reach people who have left school um, who otherwise might not know them? So in the Windrush scandal, it was, it was quite notable, the number of people who had no idea that Caribbean people arrived as citizens with equal status as other people in Britain um, from 48 onwards. So a, probably a very big question around which we could talk for 45 minutes. But very briefly, uh, what could be done in schools and how do we sort of inform people who don't know the full history? Is this this big gap in history that you talked about? Maya, is it first? I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I guess I can give a relatively short answer in that I think that teaching about empire, colonialism and history's movement should be statutory part of the curriculum in the same way that necessarily and rightly teaching about the Holocaust is, I actually think this is something that cannot be left to individual schools to, to, to make up their minds about. And there is a center in the UK that um, equips teachers with how to teach about the Holocaust. And I think there could be an equivalent for, um, or something similar for empire and colonialism so that to ensure that it is done in a way that doesn't treat this as you know good and bad, let's weigh it up, but actually does give it the space and attention that it deserves. It's very hard. I think, I mean, people still do argue this, so it's not very hard because it's happening, but it for me, reading about and learning about histories of the British Empire um, is someone who is that was central to my PhD and is central to my academic work. It's so difficult to say this should be a good and bad thing when you read about the realities of what the empire was. And I think it's really necessary. One of the things I think it's really necessary is going back to what David was saying about comic relief is it's still really central to how we understand Britain is there's this idea that Britain developed itself through the Industrial Revolution. And what is erased in that is the extraction that was necessary for that. The deindustrialization of India was essential for the Industrial Revolution. Um, it was a key part of that. And so learning about that is really necessary for understanding contemporary Britain and how we understand it today. And I think that one of the things that I, I do quite a lot is talk to teachers about this. And they do, um, 
you know, struggle and I will plug our migration story that which um, I know that you were, were central to, um, which is something which is a website that gives teachers with material gives equipped teachers with the materials to teach about these histories in complex and nuanced ways. Something that was done in conjunction, I believe, with the Running Me Trust, which I'm on the board of, I'll full disclosure, and the University of Manchester. And that things like that, initiatives like that, I think are really central to making sure that these subjects are taught in a in our school system now and at lobbying for change because I believe that it was a campaign maybe I may be wrong about this but I believe that it was a campaign to teach about the Holocaust that meant that that was ended up being a statutory part of the curriculum so I would like to you know see an equivalent here and that is already happening with a lot of activist groups that are really exciting doing some of this work um, but I would really want to see government take that up. Yeah. Yes, I think that, I mean, I would agree with all of that. I suppose I'm increasingly concerned about, again, how can we achieve a kind of consensus that gives us that national reckoning, um, that, that truly civic national identity um, that enable us, enables us to have that curriculum that's truly inclusive and is prepared to wrestle with some of those really deeply um, painful bits of Britain's past. Because the truth is, I don't think that's just about a government that I'm part of or my party's in introducing some legislation and creating something. Because to be honest, the next government can come along and kick it out. And I was really depressed by some of the changes that Michael Gove made to the education curriculum. Um, and I actually, under the previous Labour government, had been the minister driving to get slavery into the curriculum. We got it there and of course it's been taken out. And even then, even getting it there, it was largely through the lens of Wilberforce that it was there. So, so look, I think we need, a, it's gotta be a deeper moment than I think, um, than I think we have. I, Paul Gilroy did read some chapters of my book and give me some feedback and I know, you know, he perhaps is a bit more pessimistic <laughs> that this is achievable than, than, than I was. You know, he was pleased I was writing, but I'm not sure he thought that my conclusions were quite going to happen anytime soon. Um, but I think this is very real. And I think the other thing is to say that it's not just schools. We have great national institutions, important ones like the BBC. Uh, when I fought in Parliament to get diversity into the charter it was for this very very reason now that's not the whole story but it is part of the story um, and, and again it's about new national institutions that want to tell those whole stories and create those water cooler moments those national conversations that we're all part of in a way the olympics was probably the last moment i think where we seem to come together and the envision was an inclusive one not just the athletes that were there, but also the, the, the ceremony and the way in which we wanted to present ourselves. It was the last moment where I really felt, wow, and I could, my kids could watch something and sort of feel inspired. Um, somehow it was a bit downhill since then. Um, so we can do it. And that was just, a, that, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that the Olympics in 2012 was a sort of a moment of great depth. I think I hope this nature of this conversation it, it requires a degree of depth but but there is you know it's a work in progress and all we can do is contribute to that national discourse and hope that it gets picked up by future generations I personally despite the fact that I think there's a lot in the world to be very worried about at this time and to some extent scared and frightened particularly 
in the midst of this pandemic, I'm hugely optimistic about the millennials. I think they're a great generation and they fill me with tremendous hope. There's some way from the levers of power at the moment, you know, we've still got people like Trump and Biden, and, you know, these are these pretty old guys, right? But, 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 but I, I am optimistic that when the millennials get there, they're gonna do us proud. My, I think that's you. I missed a millennial by a few months, unfortunately. So. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I wish we had more time. It feels really just like the beginning of a conversation rather than sort of a conversation that's fully fleshed. Take care and stay safe. That was Maya Goodfellow, David Lammy, and Malachi McIntosh, their host, speaking together for the Bookbound 2020 Festival. It isn't often that you hear words of praise spoken about the millennials, is it? So let's take those and run with it, guys. As I mentioned at the start of the programme, Malachi is the editor and publishing director of Wasafiri magazine. Wasafiri was our partner for the Bookbound Festival and we are so grateful to them for sharing their contacts with us and helping us bring even more exciting speakers to the lineup. Next time on the Bookbound podcast, I will be speaking, me, Georgie Codd, with the author Samantha Harvey. Don't miss it. If you enjoyed today's episode, whoop whoop, we're so pleased. Tell everybody. And please rate us, review us and subscribe. It would absolutely charm the pants off us if you did. The Bookbound podcast team is me, that's Georgie Codd again, Claire Reed, Felicity Quick and Beatrice Bazell. Our wonderful theme tune is Wonder Under by the Gladrags, which was very kindly uploaded to the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>